Okay, we will be studying tonight Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be doing uh, verses 1 through 13. As long as we get through it all, I think we will. Um, if you haven't already been using these as a resource, um, I'm going to strongly encourage them. I've found them incredibly helpful. We'll watch another small piece of them today. Uh, but the se- series that Jeremy and Justin have done through the book of Ephesians, I've just found incredibly helpful. So... Um, just wanted to kind of refresh our minds as we are closing closing the first half of the book. Some of the ways that people have chosen to outline this particular letter. And most of them will break it right down the middle. Chapters 1 through 3, um, the call of God in Christ or blessings of being a Christian. And then chapters 4 through 6 are what we typically think about as the most applicable Um Therefore, now that we know the call of God in Christ, we need to walk worthy of that call. Or the this idea of blessings of being a Christian in 1 through 3, and the responsibilities of the Christian in 4 through 6. Um, so I, I found this very helpful. While we're digging deep into this mysterious passage, what section of this is it falling under, and, and why take the time to go through it? So before we jump into the text, did anyone have any, any questions or other thoughts um, up until this point of the letter? Okay. Was that? No. No? Cool. Let's uh, go ahead and read uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Uh, do we have a volunteer for that <coughs> section? Thank you, Katrina. Uh, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. All right, thank you. So before we kind of go through this in sections, let's let's look at it as as a whole. What similarities do you see in this section compared to what we read in chapter 1? Are there words or phrases or ideas that we have heard before? Any sense of deja vu here? That are continued in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Christ. Yes, very much so. So there's a, a repeating of where these things are coming from, right? In Christ, in Him. What else? Dispensation. And the, and the grace of, dispensation of the grace of God. 
Right. So God in Christ is dispensing grace, and and there's a specific reason for it in here. Paul is talking about the grace that was given to him for a specific purpose. The mystery was um, introduced in chapter one. Correct. This idea of this mystery was first mentioned in chapter one and verse nine. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, and He kind of leaves that term for a chapter and a half here, two chapters, and now He's coming back to it. So, what do I mean when I use that term?、Um, what is that mystery? What else? The gospel is for all. The gospel is for all. In fact, and it's it's kind of interesting. He he's getting ready to reveal this mystery in chapter three. But it is not the first time that he's introduced this concept, even in this letter,、um, and so it's it's kind of a, well, I don't want to say a lackluster reveal, but if you've been paying attention to what Paul has been saying, he's been prepping you for this this revelation that the gospel is for all. Are there some words, some more words beyond mystery that we we heard a lot of in chapter one? And now he's bringing the use of those words back. Did you notice any of them? There's a spirit of wisdom and、uh, revelation and knowledge and enlightenment. So it's adding it's additional terms for the mystery of、uh, not being able to see it, and then picking it back up for、um, you know the, the New Testament. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that was his prayer in the second half of chapter one. Paul kind of gives this prayer, and he's he's praying to God that certain things would be accomplished for these Christians. And mostly, it's about、um, he says in verse eighteen of chapter one, having the eyes of our of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he was he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? He wants them to know. These things that he knows, and now here in chapter three, he, he's going to start sharing some of those specific revelations that were given to him, so that they can know as well. We're going to come back to that that prayer again. There's also talk of、uh, rulers and authorities in heavenly places in both chapters, where one is it, it appears it's being done on display. Yes. So that they can they can observe to、uh, the video assignment you gave us. They kind of touched on that too、uh, briefly about the gospel being put on display in, in, in an unseen realm as well. Absolutely, and I actually I will show us that clip,、okay. that specific clip of that video because I found it incredibly helpful when we consider that there are spiritual beings observing us. And observing the church, God's handiwork, and what it says about Him, which is, which is incredible to to consider. Yeah, you're a part of something. Yes, you're you're important. Something something big, something impressive. We mentioned the the dispensation of grace. That word grace is brought up multiple times in chapter one, and grace is mentioned again and again here in chapter three. And there's also varying.、Um, Uses of the word purpose or will or plan of God, according to His purpose, according to His is uh, uh, yes. Let's see. In verse five of chapter one, He says, "According to the purpose of His will." Verse nine is according to His purpose.、Uh, verse eleven, according to the purpose of Him who works all things.、Um, I skipped one in verse ten. 
the idea of according to um, as the a plan for the fullness of time. God has a will and an intention and a plan, a purpose for us and for His church, and and all of thing all of these things are being done on purpose. He mentions those in in verse nine and verse eleven of chapter three. So let's kind of dive down into it in the verse first three verses here. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, I don't know about your all translation. I'm using the ESV, but at the end of verse one, there's a there's a dash, which is kind of a, a symbol to indicate this thought is being interrupted and we'll return to it after our regular scheduled programming, right? There's, and I and I kind of was looking for, okay, well, where does that thought get picked back up? As far as I can tell, he comes back to it in verse fourteen. He repeats himself to break. So he's like, Paul goes down this rabbit hole a little bit, and it's a very encouraging, effective rabbit hole. But he doesn't actually come back to it until verse fourteen. So we'll we'll get to that. For this reason, I, Paul, on behalf of you Gentiles. We're going to talk about his parenthetical statement here for the next uh, 12 verses. He does something interesting in verse 2. Did this jump out to you all? Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Does that seem odd? Who is this letter potentially written to? How familiar were they with, with Paul? So there's a couple ways to read this. I'll be honest, the first time that I read it, and maybe I was just reading it in my own voice, I detected sarcasm. <laughs> Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Surely they have heard this. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, Paul repeats his conversion story no less than three times. To various audiences, he was not one to keep that story to himself. The grace and the mission, the purpose that was given to him. So you could read it with sarcasm. Um, almost like, well, obviously you have heard this. Therefore, I'm going to make these points about this that, that you ought to know. Um, you could read it, and some people do use this passage to... To come to the conclusion that this was not written specifically to the Ephesians, but to the general Christians in that area. Because if he's not using this sarcastically, it's odd that the Ephesians wouldn't, or this group of people wouldn't have already known. He spent a significant amount of time with them. So this question, what was the stewardship of God's grace that was given to Paul for these Christians? What was Paul entrusted with? And I threw a couple of passages up here that that may be able to help us. Let's go ahead and turn to these in Acts chapter 9. And if someone gets there before me, by all means, just start reading it. Acts 9, 15 and 16. Surely someone got there before I did. 15 and 16? Yes, please. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
So, context of this passage, this is the first account that we have of the conversion of Saul. And after he has been taken into the city without his sight, God calls on this man, Ananias, and tells him to go and meet with this persecutor of God's church. And he tells Ananias, this man Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in Acts 26, Paul is recounting his conversion story before Agrippa. And uh, verses 15 through 18, he, he adds more of the initial conversation that when the Lord appeared to him on the road, he says that the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, this is in verse 16, and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what was Paul given as a steward? What did he have stewardship over now? The gospel. The gospel, specifically to whom? Gentiles. Primarily to Gentiles. Now, he, 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 Ananias was told it would be to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. He would preach to, to both, to, to both groups. But maybe to, to better help us appreciate and understand what, what Paul is trying to say back in Ephesians, what is stewardship? When we talk about that word, what does that mean? Someone who's made a steward of something. Like a manager of somebody else's belongings. Right. Possessions. A manager of someone else's belongings and typically something valuable, right? I'm normally not made the steward of somebody's garbage cans. Mm-hmm. Although the other week we were made stewards of somebody else's <laughs> garbage cans. <laughs> but they are entrusting something to us, expecting us to care for it like it belonged to us or better, Right. And so God, Christ, is giving Paul this task of carrying this message specifically to the Gentiles. But based on what he told Ananias there in in Acts chapter 9, what would go along with this stewardship? And what is implied in Ephesians chapter 1, when the way that Paul describes himself? Suffering. Suffering. He describes himself as a prisoner, and he says it's on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm in jail because I'm preaching this message to your people. And he doesn't throw it in their face to make them feel bad about it. He's simply stating the fact that he is fulfilling the stewardship that he was given. And it was a call to suffer that Saul and eventually Paul knew from the very beginning would be involved. And he still willingly did it. So what Paul is getting ready to do in the rest of this section in Ephesians 3 is he's getting ready to share with them the very thing that he prayed God would give in the in the prayer earlier here in Ephesians. Specifically in 17 through 19 we mentioned this, I pray that your eyes will be enlightened that you'll you'll know, you know, you'll have this knowledge of God. Well here in 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 chapter 3 
he's getting ready to fulfill his own prayer. And I just want to make a brief point on that. Sometimes we need to be prepared to be the answer to our own prayers. How often do we pray? I pray that so-and-so would be encouraged, that they'll be strengthened, that they'll be comforted. And I think sometimes God says, okay, get to it. And so Paul is praying, I pray that they would have these things and it doesn't take him very long to go ahead and give them those things. And so when we pray for our brothers and our sisters, when we pray for the world, can we be the one to fulfill that prayer as, as Paul did here? So, what is the mystery? We've been dancing around it. Some of us have actually said it. What is the mystery that Paul is referring to and why was he chosen to make known this mystery. The fellow heirs, the uh, Gentiles receiving the, the inheritance that was previously given to Israel. That, that's the mystery. That's the mystery. That I, all along, that was the plan. That's right. That's right. So verse verse 6 makes it very clear that, that not only are they fellow heirs, they're members of the same body, partakers of the same promise. These are the things that he just finished talking about in the previous two, two chapters, right? Um, but God did these things for you. You once were aliens and now you've become citizens. The mystery is that you now get to enjoy the benefits that before now were only primarily made to the Jews. Why would that be so mysterious? It seems fairly obvious to us. I believe that all, if not the majority of us, are Gentiles, technically, in this room. And I I feel like we just kind of, well, of course, the Gentiles have access to it. Why would that have been so mind-blowing at that time? Katrina? On Sunday, you mentioned that it wasn't just... The Jews took their inheritance and said, we're better, so we get the inheritance. Yes. Maybe instead of the mystery being, oh, the Gentiles are now included, the mystery was the ones that follow God are the are the ones that receive the inheritance. And yes. he defines it as the fellow heirs, the members of the body, the protectors of the promise. So it's maybe less... The Jews are no longer the called ones. It's more, I have always called the ones that will follow me. That's a, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and it kind of, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the next question, because I, I think these things go, go hand in hand. How, how do we reconcile the fact that God chose Israel? He chose the Jews to be his special people. How do we reconcile that with this revelation? That now the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Did God start down a path and go, wow, these Jews, this is not working. I guess I'll just open it up to everybody. I'm seeing several hands here. So Jill and then Lloyd. Um, that, was, that was always the plan. Uh, God's promise to Abraham was that his family would be a blessing to all the nations. And so God chooses the one to bring the blessing to the many. Yes. So that's Genesis 12 and several other times in the book of Genesis. Like, all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, God said, my, my plan is to choose you, Israel, as my special chosen people to bring about a Messiah that will then benefit everybody. And somewhere along the line, fairly early on, the Jews got in their head that it was only going to be a blessing for them. 
And when you read, uh, you know, if you remember our study through Exodus and Leviticus with Tommy, you read all of the laws that were put into place as to how the Jews were to treat foreigners. How were they to treat non-Jews? They, they were to recognize that they had been in bondage. They had been foreigners in a and, yeah. foreign land. And do what for them? What kinds of things were they supposed to do? To treat them uh, good. To treat them just like they would themselves, oftentimes better, right? They were to offer them blessing when they were to come in. Somewhere along the line, because you see it especially in Jesus' day, they did not do that. They treated themselves as superior, as God's chosen people, and the Gentiles were not even allowed to come close. Um, They had a misconception of stewardship. Yes. That's kind of what I'm getting, that they identified themselves as chosen maybe through merit and law than faith and uh, reconciliation. Right. And it was because they had a misunderstanding of what it meant to be given a role to play in God's plan. They assumed, because they were given a role to play, that it somehow made them better than those that they were going to. Paul is a great example of how we should treat, uh, how we should think of ourselves when we are given a role. Uh, We we, we look, uh, when we get to Ephesians 5... Husbands and wives have roles, and they're different from each other. It doesn't make the husband better than the wife, or the wife better than the husband. The roles are different, but their value is not determined by their role. Paul does not make himself out to be someone special or more important because he was given a special revelation from God and given this special role to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He considers himself the least of all the saints. The Jews had not, primarily, had not figured that out. They had taken upon themselves a a superiority complex because they had been given a role to play in the bringing of the Messiah. Um, Yes? Um, So that reminded me of the parable where um, the master keeps sending people to the employees and they keep killing or, you know, and then this, or they keep getting rid of him, the son comes and they kill him. It, the fact that they were trying to take over the garden, if you will, or the vineyard, right. in spite of what God wanted them to do. Yeah, that's a great example. So that parable, so the recording can hear it, that Jesus told about the wicked vine dressers, right? They had been put in charge, entrusted with a stewardship, and they believed themselves to be the owners of the vineyard instead of the caretakers. And eventually, God would come and remove them from that role and put new people in. And when the Jews heard it, when the Pharisees heard that parable, what was their response? Oh, no, surely not. Well, of of course that would be the right response from the master. You've abused the stewardship. In fact, when we look back at the Old Testament, it is hard for us to understand how the Jews got this idea. God, time and time again, gave warnings of repentance and calls to holiness to the other nations. You think of the story of Jonah. Jonah was sent not to a Jewish nation, but to a foreign nation, and God was calling them to righteousness, to repentance. Yeah? I think there's 
a fine line between opposing evil and boasting it within ourselves. Like, we are to not have anything to do with darkness, but what the Pharisees did in taking that too far is they it, they made it all about them and boasting in themselves versus it's all about God and our and our focus is holiness. And so we... We treat everyone the way God would treat them versus, well, since we're God's people, then you guys, you know, that, that right. was not God's intention. Yes, put away the darkness. You know, have nothing to do with that, but it's because we're trying to be like God, not because we're trying to shun people. Yeah. And when we appreciate that what's been given to us, we were not deserving of, we will look out among other people and say, look, come come and enjoy these benefits too because I'm not worthy of them. You're not worthy of them, but they're, they're being offered to us all. Um, and that was not that was not the way that, that the Jews had. Real quick, Sarah. Lloyd, I don't know that I ever got back to you, buddy. No? It's good? Okay. Um, the, the idea of all of the laws related to holiness and purity and what you have to do to, to worship it's like the Jews have in their mind, okay, in order to be acceptable to God, these are the things I have to do. You don't do those, therefore you're not acceptable to God. I mean, it's, in, in some ways, that's just as simple as as, as that. In, it can be in your head. Right. You know, particularly if you're thinking physical things. Did you wash your hands three times? And you know, Right. And that was why, back in chapter 2, Paul tried to get them to understand this grace was given to you not because of works that you've done. It was because of uh, you've been saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith. It's not because of anything you've done so that you can't brag about it because that is a tendency of ours. Um, we've been picking on the Jews quite a bit, but it is a tendency of humanity to to raise ourselves above those that don't yet know. Yeah. Uh, why would Paul be... Given the, um, he has an interesting testimony because if you're a persecutor of the church but you're given such a enormous role what he's saying is th- think about who I'm spreading the gospel with people that don't deserve it people that actually opposed me I can use broken vessels therefore this is not a merit based thing this is something about um, we keep going back to Abraham you know of the faith of the fathers, that this is a faith-based uh, thing of, of grace that we get caught up in it. Um, we get caught up in our own misconceptions as we read the Old Testament, and that's why this revelation is so important. And who's and who's being used to um, spread it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, what was the purpose? What was the objective of God in revealing this? Mystery. Why go through all of this trouble? If this is a plan that he's had since before the foundation of the earth, why go through all this trouble to reveal this? So my recommendation is look for the so that, because there are several of those throughout the book of Ephesians. He'll lay out some truth and then he'll say, so that, dot, dot, dot. So where's the so that in this particular section? Verse 10. 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So why go through all of the trouble to allow all of humanity now to enjoy the benefits of being fellow heirs 
partakers of the same promise. It's so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places um, through the church. What does that mean? This is a God alone thing. You know what I mean by that? This is a um, no man could be no man could do this. This is a, a God um, what's the word? ordained plan, and that it's supposed to make us stop and take notice, even the authorities. That uh, I think just stand in awe, kind of like the, what the video was talking about. Right. So I want to go ahead. I want to go ahead and show that portion of the video. We've referred to it now a couple of times um, to help us appreciate. Jeremy uses a great illustration here to help us appreciate what God intended to be accomplished through this. Verse ten, I think, is. Oh, and we'll. Uh, No, it'll actually play this time, I promise. I just want to make sure that you all can hear it. Verse 10, I think, is the focal point. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. That when these beings, at the end of verse 10, these authorities in heavenly places, look at this group of redeemed people that were reconciled through the sacrifice of God's Son, they look at that whole process from start to finish, this eternal purpose that God was working before creation, that they those beings didn't figure out, they didn't anticipate. Right? It's like it's like watching uh, a master chess player and not being able to figure out what his move is until he actually does it. Like, oh man, that guy is so skillful. These beings were watching God work his eternal purpose. And honestly, it looks foolish all along the way. Right. I mean, you're using these people, these flawed people, these imperfect people. Um, you go back through the history of the Bible. Some of them were just downright wicked people. But God and his providence ended up using them to accomplish his purpose. Right. Which was the, the sacrifice of Jesus to redeem and reconcile these people. And so, and on a personal level, if I belong to that body, if I belong to the church... When these beings look at my redemption, they're going to look at God and go, wow, God was so wise in how he pulled that off. Because only God could have pulled Only off. God could have pulled something off like God that. Could have somebody to have like saved somebody that way, they never would have thought of that. Yeah. Um, and what that does is, he's so humble about it, there's nothing to be arrogant about that process. Um, it should make us, it should make us appreciate I love the phrase, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God. Yeah. He's wise in so many ways on so many levels um, that when we think about our salvation and redemption, we appreciate God's wisdom. So it's uh, that idea, the illustration that he used of a master chess player. Um, there's a film that was made uh, 20, 25 years ago called uh, In Search of Bobby Fischer or Searching for Bobby Fischer. Right? And it was about a young child chess prodigy. And uh, he is being trained by an incredibly skillful man, but very quickly surpasses the knowledge of his instructor. And this kid is seven, eight years old. And I just remember in this movie, they're, they're observing this kid play through a television monitor because they're not allowed in the room. And his, his mentor says he has checkmate in 14 moves. 
the mentor is skillful enough to see that if he plays the board right in 14 moves, this kid can have checkmate. And the kid actually does something to disrupt that, what the mentor thought was a surefire win, but the kid was looking farther than 14 moves. And so to the mentor, it looked foolishness. He brought his his queen out and let her get captured. And the mentor thought, this this kid, he's lost it. What a fool. But it was because he was looking farther than 14 moves. God, in setting this plan in action, did things that First Corinthians, uh, the beginning of First Corinthians tell, looks like foolishness to the world. You're telling me that letting your son come to earth and then get crucified is how you're going to save him? Well, that's, that's stupid, the world would say. And God is saying, I'm looking 28 moves ahead. And so the skill of the master to say, this is how I'm going to do it, so that who can look and observe this and give glory to God? These rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and I am not going to pretend to know who he's talking about. But they are people with the kind of authority and the kind of standing that if they are impressed by God's work, we should pay attention to what God has done. But then we also, as Jeremy reminded us, we also should be aware that what they are should be impressed by is us. So they're looking at us, these, these varied and different and seemingly opposing people that somehow God has figured out to get them to all work together in unity. And these spiritual rulers are looking down and saying, this is, this is the master chess player to be able to move those pieces in such a way. Yeah, it says so that through the church. Yes. That, that supports exactly what you're saying. That through us and the unity, it, it's on display. Our response is on display. Correct. Correct. Yeah, Brad. Um, reminds me of Job 1, uh, verse 6 says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came with them. And the Lord said, Where have you come from? And he says, uh, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And you guys probably know the rest of the story, right? Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there are times when God says, Have you considered Craig? Have you considered Brad, Ryan? whoever, um, and his purpose in doing that is to show all of those heavenly beings that his plan is still at work because he's raising people from the dead. And it's not done so that Craig can boast about himself. It's done to say, look at that insignificant nobody who's accomplishing something that seems impossible and should never have worked. You write that thing on paper and it looks foolish on paper and yet there it is. And the purpose of that is so that they will say, God is amazing. That his, what it says, uh, the manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God. They will say, I never would have even thought that something so incredible could have been done. Sorry, I interrupted your thought. Oh, I was just saying, just... 
that God says, look what I did to that guy. He used yeah. to be dead. He used to just live in sin. And look what I did to him. Like, he did a 180. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's that's the way I roll. Absolutely. It's, Sarah. And if I tend to think, of, whenever I think of authorities and spiritual beings and all of that, I always go to the negative side that these are people who are opposed to God, which may or may not be true, but... If you if you think of them as being ones who are opposed to God, they get to look at this this plan, this whole thing, and how it worked out, and see how wise that God is. And they have to come to the conclusion: we can't fight this plan. Hmm. This plan is not. You can't beat this. We thought we beat it here. We thought we beat it. No, we can't beat this. And sometimes I wonder if authorities in the non spiritual realm should sometimes look at the same thing or be able to look at this same thing and say, we can't beat that plan. Yeah. We can't, we're not going to be able to crush that. Yeah. Well, I hadn't thought of it from, from that perspective, that those opposed to God would be impressed. Um, but it is an, an interesting thought to, to consider. Um, for, First Peter chapter 1 talks about, in verses 10 through 12, that this was a plan, um, in verse 12 it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this was a plan that even angels did not have a full grasp on what was happening. But boy, when he pulled it off, how impressed they would be. And of all the people to tell the story, to reveal it to, to tell the story, Paul has been opposed to all of this to start with. Right. Right. So let's let's talk about that. Paul, who was initially so opposed to it, he was killing the people who believed in him. This Jew who becomes a Christian, who goes to Gentiles to say, here is this savior of all of us who happens to have been a Jew. And I, I was trying to think of examples of like how impressive that needs to be on us. Our, our group is diverse in, in some facets. But think of it. What if we were sitting in a room where there, there were people who used to be um, you know, followers of Islam? We've, you know, some people who used to be Mennonites, some Mormons here, some Jehovah's Witnesses here, people who, who used to be involved with Hinduism... And now we are all together believing and practicing and working together. And we would say, what else could possibly bring a group so diverse together? Um, the truth is there are groups like that now. Um, we were blessed to, to talk with Caleb Churchill, Roger Polanco, and the groups that they work with in New York. Talk about a diverse set of people. And it is such an amazing thing to see. People of different languages and nationalities and former belief systems, and they're all singing together and praising God together, and that is that is impressive. So Paul brings up that he has been imprisoned for being a messenger of this revelation. He says that in verse 1. But in verse 13, how is he able to encourage them not to lose heart or grow discouraged by that?
think of this comment about the rulers and authorities and the heavy place, heavenly places, you know, whatever that means, that tells us that the stage that we're playing on is so much bigger than we realize. Yeah. Um, that the, the things that we go through from day to day, um, even if it's as bad as imprisonment, um, there's a much bigger context. Absolutely. And it gives us a boldness and an access with confidence which was not previously accept, uh, accessible to the common man. And this is a whole sermon. I've heard many sermons on this. If someone were to ask you, if you were, di- if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I've heard many Christians say, well, I, I hope so. I'd like to, I'd like to think so. That is not the way Paul spoke of his faith and his final destination. And I don't believe that Paul had any additional skills or blessings that allowed him to be that confident. We all have access to this kind of boldness and confidence through our faith in him. That doesn't mean to say, I'm going to heaven because I am a rock star Christian. It is, I'm going to heaven because I'm relying on the one who's the only reason I can get there in the first place. Because he's so awesome. Because he's so wise. And he says, I don't want you to lose heart about this over what I'm suffering for you, he says in verse 13, which is your glory. It would have been so easy for Paul to get stuck on what this was was hindering him from doing. This is not where I want to be. Um, in the last few minutes that we have here, we live in a culture that is obsessed with self. We talk about self-care, and we talk about self-acceptance and self-reliance and self-help. How many self-help scrolls do you think Paul was reading while he was there in prison? How much time do you think he was spending in those prisons fussing over himself? Now, it's not to say that we should not take care of ourselves or concern ourselves at all with, with what we need, but I think we are too quick to focus too much on just us. And Paul is saying, look... I am in prison and I am suffering for you, but my suffering is actually for your glory. You are being benefited by the fact that I'm here in prison. And I I think it goes back to God does things that from the outside looking in may seem foolish, but he's using people that we never would have expected and situations that we never would have anticipated to fulfill a glorious purpose. And Paul is saying, don't don't get discouraged. Don't lose heart over this. Because you're being glorified in this. So in the last couple of minutes that we have, how is this section applicable to us today? Because I don't want us to to get confused that there's only application in chapters 4 through 6. What kind of application can we take in this section? Can I bring up the mystery about the uh, fellow... I thought we solved the mystery. (laughs) The thing thing about being able to apply, you say applicable, so this is not my original idea, but you can take um, the mystery and go back into the Old Testament and the scripture will jump off the page at you. 
the, the prodigal son, we, we tend to think of that as an extravagantly wasteful person that goes out and um, comes back. Like it's a one individual. And I've heard that you can actually apply Israel, uh, Jews and Gentiles, the older brother being Israel, the one that goes away and squanders the inheritance is Gentiles. And when the Gentile comes back, it's not of his own merit, and the older brother is kind of upset. I've been here the whole time. I was chosen. I remain here with you. And he doesn't want to come into the house and celebrate the return. And that goes back to like the uh, the Tower of Babel, where there's the disinheritance, and God inherits a, a portion. So it's a really deep thing I'm trying to get you guys to think about, that you can take the mystery and go back. Mm-hmm. And the Bible will explain everything. Yes. It's inter- it's just interesting. So if you want to apply that mystery serves your Bible study, your personal study. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's one of those things, you know, a good story is is the kind that when you get to the oh, light bulb moment, that yeah. that twist, you immediately want to go back, you know. Have you seen any of those movies that you oh, you those credits start rolling and you go, "Okay, I was going to say rewind it, but no. <laughs> you don't rewind it. Skip it back. Start it over. Maybe these days. You know, maybe these days. Um, Some of still rewind. And yet God God wants us to do that, absolutely, because it starts at the very beginning. This was not like, bet you never saw this coming. He's been trying to, to prep them for that. I do want us to consider one of the ways that we can apply this is we need to see our role, whatever that role is. Paul's role was very specific here, but we need to see our role as a gift because that's the way that Paul refers to it. And I think it's a gift in, in two ways. The roles that we've been given are gifts given to us by God. So we need to treat them as precious things that we are given stewardship of, but they are roles that should be then given as gifts to other people. And that I think should better shape the discussion of husbands and wives when we get to chapter five. My role as the head of my wife is not a weapon to be used, but it's a gift to be given. And my wife's role as honoring her husband is not something to be used to manipulate, but it's a gift meant to be given. And so we need to do the same in whatever role, whether that's as husbands and wives, whether that's as employees, whether that's as talents that we recognize that we have. Are we using them to glorify ourselves? Or are we using them to to use them as gifts to other people? And it's hard to accept that that role can also be suffering. Correct. We can take that suffering and use it for God's glory instead of just feeling sorry for ourselves. How many of us ask when we're going through difficult times, why me? Why me? And it's that self-focus and it should instead be, what can I give to others? Because God has determined that I'm strong enough for this. For some reason, he thinks I can handle it. And not just grin and, you know, grit my teeth and bear it in solitude, but use it to benefit. Because that's what Paul was doing. That's a great, that's a great point. And then finally, are we living in such a way? in our everyday life, in our work, in our school, in our, whatever it is, so that spiritual rulers and authorities in heavenly places can point to us and say, wow, that's a, that's an impressive God. Because we do. We, we tend to think about, you know, God is watching us. 
and he's observing us and he's going to hold us accountable for the things that we do in final judgment. But there are, in some ways, other spiritual beings that are observing us as individuals and us as his church. Because that's specifically what he says here. Is the church at Avon behaving themselves in such a way so that the spiritual beings are glorifying God because of us? Or are we nitpicking each other? Are we are we getting bent out of shape about useless things? Or are we showing the glory of God by saying we are very different people and we have different talents and we have different backgrounds and we all have issues and we're all coming together and somehow we're making this work. Not somehow. Because of Christ, we're making this work. And that should be a glory to God. Any other questions in the 15, 20 seconds that we have? Just in looking at verse 6 just a little bit, um, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers or partners of the promise. And if you think of those, each one of them implies a um, deeper connection, a more intimate connection. You can be a co-heir with your worst enemy. <coughs> and, you know, somebody can write both of you into the will. Um, you can be part of the same group and not be close. But whenever you are partners and working together, working, you know, can two go, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's an intimacy it, it, it here, right? It gets yeah. closer and closer, and I think that may be one of the reasons why he says three things that kind of mean the same thing all there together. Yeah. Love there's no distinction here. There's no levels of grace. You know, there's no, like, oh, the Jews still have kind of the top spot, and the rest of it. No, we are all still fellow heirs. So on Sunday, uh, we'll be studying chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Um, Brad is actually going to take us through that because I'm going to be out of town and David is going to be out of town. Um, so, all those really difficult questions that you've been saving thus far, just just give them to Brad. But I've got some questions of my own. And then you can work on those on Sunday and I'll look forward to hearing the answers after I, I will ask some questions.